I do want to tell you a little bit about the, about the series before we launch in, uh, because uh, we're really excited about uh, what God has brought to, to bear uh, in our midst as we were praying and thinking through how to talk about our values, um, because we have done it for a decade and a half, so how should we approach it this year? And what got brought to mind was actually a little bit unexpected. Uh, we're going to be talking about children's stories, so to speak. Uh, at least stories that we treat as children's stories. Uh, maybe we even dress up our nurseries as such. Um, you know, imagery of Noah's Ark all around the, uh, the crib or whatever else, which if you think about it, it seems wildly inappropriate um, <laughs> to be, is the, is the crib, the, maybe the crib's the Ark. We'll just, we'll say that. Here's hoping. Um, but more than just wanting to talk about our values, we... Um, we want to make this place a safe place to wrestle with big questions. Uh, because when these children's stories do kind of grow up in your mind, or when you return to them as you've grown up, they can be startling. Uh, they can be unsettling. Uh, so, very much so. Um, I know for sure the flood story has been uh, one to knock me off balance. You know, it's like you think you know somebody. <laughs> And then you read about the flood and you think, what? That's not, that's not the God I know. What's, what's happening here? And certainly, th this is something that is probably more and more necessary in our world. Uh, as you see, it's sort of maybe transition into sort of a post-Christian space culturally. Uh, probably, if you haven't heard it said yet, in maybe the somewhat near future, you'll hear someone say the Bible is hate speech or talk about it in such negative terms. I bet it will happen for you. Um, and I bet uh, at that moment, you'll be glad that we dug in together as a community to, to think through what are these passages really getting at. So when we talk about these children's stories, all grown up, we are looking to talk about our values and we are looking to maybe wrestle together as a community with what is in the pages of this God-inspired scripture. And in the end, we believe we're gonna find God beautiful and not just useful, not just something to put in our back pocket as we journey through our days, but something beautiful, worthy of our attention and all our hoorays, as one of my favorite children's Bibles likes to put it. Um, but last time we were together, we were talking about easier stories, right? Last time we were together, it was Christmas Eve, and it was warm and sentiment and actually warm outside, and the candlelight was glowing, and the children were all dressed up, and we were talking about the meaning of these wonderful stories. And if it makes you sad to think about how Christmas is over, don't worry, because it's not actually over. Today is Epiphany Sunday. It's the very last day of the 12 days of Christmas for all the Orthodox friends in the room. We're still going. We're still going. It's Epiphany Sunday, which is to say the Sunday when we uh, pay attention to the fact that the Magi arrived from the Far East to come and adore him. Uh, I have to tell you, the first time I ever heard of Epiphany Sunday, uh, I happened to be in the Vatican. <laughs> Uh, we went to Rome uh, for a class in college, and we went to hear Pope John Paul II sort of give mass and bless us, and then all of a sudden there was a parade, and people were very dressed up, and it was wonderful, and I thought, what is this? 
what have I been missing out on? My Protestant background is just holding me back. It's so wonderful. And they were, thro they were throwing candy into the crowd, and the children were, they were giving all their hoorays. And it was really great. And I thought, what is this? And there was an epiphany out of it. It's epiphany. It's epiphany. It's, it's the day we remember that Jesus is worth uh, coming to adore. And, and this has actually been a big deal in church history and in church art. Like, let me show you a painting here. Uh, this is a painting by uh, a very famous artist, actually. His name is Albrecht Dürer. A uh, very important artist, actually, thinking through even the Protestant Reformation, actually. Uh, this painting was even uh, commissioned by Frederick the Wise, the very same person who made Martin Luther safe enough to translate the Bible from uh, the original languages into German. Uh, same guy. Wise guy. Uh, and so he commissioned this painting, and here we see the Magi come to adore the baby, Jesus. Um, and as Albrecht Dürer is known for, he actually places himself in the painting. That's him there in the center with that golden mane and flowing locks, uh, which he is famous for. Uh, Albrecht Dürer, among those who have come to, to adore him. Um, although there are some things here that might not be all that accurate, it's maybe dressed up in sentiments and covered up in tradition in ways that are a little bit unhelpful, a little bit askew. For instance, it's baby Jesus. Well, that's not actually accurate. Epiphany would be uh, Jesus as a toddler, a two-year-old, uh, down the line. It takes a while to travel from the Far East. Following a star even takes a while. So they wouldn't have gotten there for a couple of years. Epiphany is a couple years down the line. And even just the idea that there should be three you know, that seems reasonable. There's three gifts. I'm sure we don't want to imagine too many people showing up without a gift. How embarrassing, right? But, uh, but the idea that there is three, that's, well, that's just tradition. That's, that's just tradition. There's even a tradition going on here that I think we could be thankful for. Albrecht Dürer uh, follows in the sort of church history, art history vein, and, and makes one of the Magi uh, a, a, a person from Africa, uh, which is, it's another wonderful sort of tradition that you actually can find in, in the pages of the church writings uh, about this moment. And so th there's these wonderful traditions and, and wonderful sentiments, and it feels warm, and it's like, I can tell that story to my kids. Super easy. Like, we can gather them on the stage, and Mike can say really clever things, and the kids can say hilarious things, and it can be great. And why can't we just stay there? Why not just stay there with the baby Jesus? <laughs> Well, Scripture doesn't stay there, not long at all, because uh, the Magi met more than just one king, so to speak, on their journey, didn't they? They also met Herod, and Herod hears that the true king has arrived, and he freaks out. He can't let go of what was never his to begin with. He wants the power. He, he, he wants to keep the power at all costs. So we hear, just after hearing about the Magi's arrival, we hear about what has come to be called the Massacre of the Innocents. Another story that is unsettling when you think about it. I have a painting for this one, too. This one's a little further down the line. This one's in uh, sort of modern France in the 1800s. Uh, a sort of little-known painter who's straddling the lines between uh, Impressionism and Realism. And the longer you gaze at this painting of Cognier, the, the more difficult it becomes. 
This woman is desperately trying to keep her child quiet while while <laughs> sorry while the other mothers and i suppose fathers too of bethlehem are sprinting through the streets trying to get to safety and you think can baby jesus handle this world we need something all grown up to help us here. We need justice. How could Herod get away with this? It's wrong. But there's something else I want to make note of here in this painting. Well, Albrecht Durer got to put himself in the painting as one who came to adore Jesus. Here, we're not in the painting, at least not directly. If we could zoom in, I think we would find that the woman's eyes are locked on us. Why? Is it because we're the ones she's afraid of? Are we participating at the behest of Herod? Is it because we're trying to play the part of the innocent bystander, something like a Levite crossing on the other side of the road? Is that why? Whatever the case may be, I would hope that we would be drawn in in such a way as to say, how can I help to make this right? Because otherwise, we have to recognize we need not just justice. We need mercy, too. We need both justice and mercy. Who can rescue us from this body of death, to quote the Apostle Paul? Who can make us safe in a world like this who can calm the chaotic waves and protect us, even from ourselves? Who can do it? This is something that many Christian thinkers have meditated about for a long time. Uh, one such thinker is Anselm, St. Anselm, who was eventually the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he's known for an argument where he tries to say, listen, here's how I know God exists and here's how I know what God is like. It's called the ontological argument. And he just lands on this phrase. He says it popped into his head, fully formed, and from there on, it just spilled out of him. He said, listen, God is that which then none greater can be conceived. He's the maximally great being. This is how we must travel and define God. He's the one that's all the way just. All the great making properties, turn it up to 11. That's God. Both justice and mercy. How can there be both justice and mercy? Especially when I travel with the really deep sense that not all is right within me either. Certainly not all is right out there. But many have come to the realization not all is right here as well. How can there be both justice and mercy? And, and so, so Anselm says, listen, God is all the way just and all the way mercy. He will do it. Echoing the biblical authors time and time again, he will do it. He will bring about both. He will turn it up to 11, I promise you. And so our first instincts are to join him on that journey. We say, yes, Anselm, I've read the stories. I've seen where both justice and mercy came crashing together in the very heart of God. And so our first instinct is to say, yes, we, we, we believe 
that, that Anselm was right to think deeply about what God is like and what he isn't like. And we joined him in saying that the God of the Bible is the maximally great being, that then which none greater can be conceived. He's all the way just and he's all the way merciful. And that works pretty well. And then we read stories like the flood. And we think, now, wait a second. Is this justice? And where is the mercy? You see, we tell the story like it's a, a children's story. I might be tempted to say a mere children's story. The, the, the kind of story that we just learn to stop believing in at some point, something like the tooth fairy or Santa Claus. We get more sophisticated, we think. And we leave behind the nursery rhymes and nursery tales of our youth. And we move on because at first glance, we can't see the justice and we can't see the mercy. And we imagine ourselves to be the solution rather than possibly part of the problem. And we move on. And our world thinks it's moving on. Perhaps we should instead join with Anselm and join with all those that came before us that were meditating on even this story and understanding how it comes to show us what it truly means to be human and what it means to follow after a God who is both fully just and fully merciful. We can see in the pages of scripture that people had been meditating it on, on this story. It's, it's, it's retold in various different ways, actually, through the Old Testament. We could tell Peter's been thinking about it. He talks about Noah and his righteousness. We could tell the author of Hebrews has been thinking about this story when you get to chapter 11. In fact, the rabbis were meditating on the story of Noah and the flood and trying to understand fully how it reveals that God is who he says he is, who is merciful and just. We could tell the rabbis have been talking about it because even Josephus in his histories mentions this story of Noah and how it plays a role in calling attention to God's mercy. In fact, this is so widespread that even Islamic literature meditates on the story of the flood. Maybe we should join in. Join in, but not alone. We must join in in community, in relationship to one another. Because on our own, we may not have the eyes to see it. I need the voices of Anselm and St. Peter and the author of Hebrews, and I need your voice too when I'm reading Scripture. Certainly my Protestant upbringing and Protestant faith says, Scripture alone, sola scriptura, but not reading it alone, children. It is meant to be read in community. I promise you, every jot and tittle of Scripture was designed to be read aloud in community with one another. I promise you. And when you do that, especially the way it was designed to be read, contiguously, with complete thoughts, you start to honor the context and you start to see it come alive in the eyes of your neighbors and you start to think, I have to honor my neighbor as I'm listening to the scripture, L listening to the idea that I need to love God with everything I've got and my neighbor while I'm sitting next to my neighbor. It has to be. It has to be relational. It's always been meant to be relational. You are not supposed to be a lone ranger Christian soldier out there in the wild on your own. You weren't. You weren't. You're meant to be here in a community that ought to be something like an ark, something like a safe place. 
something that reflects the very heart of God, fully just and fully merciful and fully committed to the good of creation. So as we start to launch into this, we, we note that we should probably give it the context that it was meant to have and not just jump in two feet Genesis chapter 6. We should remember what the authors have said because they haven't forgot what they said. It is the very thing that is building towards the rest of the story for them. They want you to keep it in mind, so we should. In fact, if we were doing it right, we would start in Genesis chapter 1, and we would read it aloud together, and we would move all the way forward, and maybe not even stop until we got through Genesis chapter 11, and that would be like the contiguous, fully formed thought that the authors had for us. But here, I actually want to jump into Genesis 3, after what we sometimes call the fall. Genesis 3.15, we find this out. That after sin has entered the camp, after the garden has been spoiled, which we'll talk about a little bit later, there's this moment where we find out what things are going to be like going forward. Sometimes we call this the curse. I want to tell you it's not necessarily an appropriate way to talk about it. Uh, whether this is descriptive or prescriptive is about as important a theological thought as you could come across. But here, to focus our thoughts, we find out that there's going to be two seeds going forward. There's going to be the seed of the serpent, who's being addressed here, and the seed of the woman. And today we're going to follow the way that the seed of the serpent spirals downward. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. The word is literally your seed and her seed. It's very interesting to think that what follows is a couple of genealogies, right? One genealogy tracing the seed of the serpent and a later genealogy tracing the seed of the woman. And what we find is that from the seed of the woman, there will be one who can bring about victory. And this victory is a little bit interesting, a little bit surprising, almost mysterious in its context because we find out that the victory is going to come through sacrifice, Maybe not what we would expect. Perhaps, if we're honest, not even what we would want. We see that the serpent will strike at the heel of the seed of the woman while the seed of the woman bruises the serpent's head. And it's really interesting to note, actually, that here, he will crush your head is a future person. Someone down the line, someone we're waiting for, someone we have hope in, to call back a sermon series from earlier. But the serpent is you, present in the conversation. All that opposes God summed up in this serpent and all that will spiral downwards will suffer defeat because there's one who's coming who's going to be willing to fully, fully give, sacrifice entirely, and win a victory even in the moments of suffering what looks like a defeat. Might sound a little familiar, right? <laughs> a, sacrificial, a sacrificial death that brings victory. But as I said, we, we start actually the story after Eden by following the seed of the serpent. We see Cain and Abel. Maybe it's the two seeds. Maybe. 
and we see that Cain allows sin to take over him. God says, you can master it. You need to master it. You should master it. But Cain doesn't. He takes the life of his brother. And he f- he's driven further east. And as we go down the, the spiraling seed and, and genealogy of Cain, what we find is more and more violence. Perhaps culminating with a, a guy named Lamech. And Lamech is boasting that he's even more violent than Cain. That, that he has had 77 times more victory than Cain had in his violent ways. He even does violence over women by taking more than one wife and saying, they exist for my good. This is the spiraling sin of all that is opposed to God. But then, a new seed, a new line is introduced. We back up, we go to Seth, and we follow Seth who is born after the death of Abel. And we follow this line. It's, it's the line of the woman, the one that descends from Eve, the mother of all living things. And here we have this line, and it gets to the 10th generation, just as Lamech had been the 10th generation from Adam as the seed of the serpent fully grown. Here we get to the 10th generation, and it's a man named Noah. And Noah means rest. And his father says, I'm going to call him rest because he's going to give us rest. He's going to give us the thing we've been waiting for. He's going to give us comfort. This is the seed of Eve. It's, it's one that we, we are on the edge of our seats about. We think maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. I heard about one who's going to be the seed of Eve. I heard about one who's going to have a victory even in the midst of defeat. I've read about it. I've been counting the generations 10 and we got to Noah and then the, the, the genealogy was even interrupted. I didn't even get to hear about his sons and all that. It's this very fascinating thing where we get this flood story plopped in the middle of the genealogy introduced at the end of five and not actually finished until nine. In the middle, we find out, is really, is Noah the one we were waiting for? That's what we're hearing about. Can Noah help us have victory over the serpent's seed that has been fully grown up into horrible circumstances? That's what we're trying to find out. So when we look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, and we're about to lean into the flood, what we find out is there is this Noah, and his name means rest, and his dad said he's going to bring comfort. And what we see, though, is that there is deep need of comfort. Genesis 6, 1 through 2, it says, Now it came about when mankind began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took wise for themselves whomever they chose. It's a little bit mysterious who these sons of God are. We want to ascribe it to be something quite positive. There's basically three options. It could be a sort of obscure reference to the line of Seth, this good line. Probably not. Uh, it could be a reference to the, to the kings of the world and the way they operate because they all thought of themselves as sons of God or representatives of Ra or whatever else. Maybe. The other option is that this is a heavenly set of beings that have decided they no longer want to live within the borders that God had set up for them. And they want to take for themselves what doesn't belong to them. 
They want to take on roles and they want to have power and they want to have jurisdiction and dominion that was never theirs to have. Sounds familiar, does it not? If we've been reading in context, it sounds very familiar because if we've been reading in context, these are the same exact words used to describe what Eve and Adam do with the fruit. She sees that it is good, Tov, and she takes it for herself. What was she doing when she took it for herself? What is this that happens when sin enters the world? Well, the Hebrew word for sin is kata. It means a failure, a failure of the standard. So in a certain way, it's, it's just exactly what you think, right? The word sin, we travel with this since we were little. It means deviation from the center, deviation from the aiming point, the thing we were aiming at. It's how much we failed by, so to speak. It's actually an archery term. To, to use it in the, the sort of Middle Ages sense. But there's more to it because the standard that she's failing is a standard of trust that says, I trust that God is right in how he has ordered the world. I trust that he is right to tell me that I have the freedom to enjoy his good creation, but it's not good for me to try to define good and evil for myself. That belongs to God alone. So what Eve and Adam do is they reach for something that was not theirs, a role, a, a set of jurisdiction, a, a power, um, a responsibility that did not belong to them. And they did it because they didn't trust God. They loved the things of God more than they loved God himself. Their, their love was all out of order. Perhaps they maybe even loved God so they could have God's stuff. Sounds a little bit like the older brother in the prodigal son story, does it not? Love all out of whack, all disordered. And what we see is that what this does is it tears at shalom. It tears at the right relationships. Eve and Adam were supposed to be in a right relationship with God where they walked with him in the cool of the evening. They trusted his order of things, his definition of good and bad, his sense of the way things ought to be. And they tore at the fabric of shalom. Shalom was shattered. And here we see it spiral all the way down to royal violence rather than caretaking. The king and queen of Eden, the royal priesthood of Eden, given the task of taking care of creation, and what we find is it spiraled all the way down to these people who have now turned it on its head, and they say creation exists for our good and we'll take it as we like. But there's one who's found favor in the eyes of God, Noah. We're told he's righteous. The word is tzedakah. It means he was in right relationship. It, it, it doesn't mean he did the, the, the pure thing all the time. What it means is he honored his relationships correctly. They were all fixed and firmly as they should be. He was in right relationship with God, right relationship with his neighbors, right relationship with himself, knowing that God is the one that's worthy of our trust. I mean, come on, he's about to build a boat on dry land. He's in right relationship. Apparently, he's the only one. We don't actually hear about his family. Not until later. And it's not good when we get there. That's for next week. We, don't, we just hear that he was in right relationship. And... 
that, that takes care of the family. It makes a generational difference, doesn't it? Doesn't violence beget violence? Doesn't it make sense that the, the homes and lives torn apart give way to another generation where homes and lives are torn apart? Let's think through the logic of the first six chapters of, uh, of Genesis. We see first as an individual failure. Adam and Eve, they fail. Kata. But then we see it is generational. The family is torn apart. And then we see it's universal, cosmic. Everything is ruined is what we're about to find out. It grows. But the righteousness also grows. And doesn't it sound familiar that there will be a righteous one who makes the family safe? I think you know his name. Jesus of Nazareth. The righteous one that makes us safe. But still, we're thinking maybe Noah is the one who can give us this rest that we're looking for. So we read on. And we try to find out what is going to happen. How will there be justice and mercy? We need justice because there are people tearing at the fabric of shalom. We need justice because there are people tearing each other apart. We need mercy because there's a good guy here. We need them both. And I wonder if we're afraid of what's going to be said next. Because we, we think back to the children's story and we go, I think what happens next is not very merciful. I think it's bad. It sounds like murder. I have to be honest, I, I even wrote a song at one point just to like work out my feelings about this passage to wonder like how can there be both justice and mercy here? I'll play it for you sometime. Not today. I will not play it today. But in this moment, we have to take the scripture at its word. We have to take it seriously. We have to read it in its context. And we have to peel back the layers of what we expect to find. What we expect to find is an angry God getting vengeance or retribution. And that is not what we find. Perhaps we expect to find it is because it's how the other flood stories at the time viewed it. There are other flood stories, Gilgamesh and Atrathasis and all these other flood stories who say, yeah, the gods hate us. It's bad. See, the flood, they hate us. And here, I want you to see the spirit of God who is inspiring the author to say, no, I'm not like that. That isn't me. I know they're confused about, but I'm not that way. Here's what it says, Genesis 11, 6, 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt, and God's sight was full of violence. We were supposed to fill the earth, and what we filled it with was violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, and this is a terrible translation I'm going to have to fix for you, I am going to put an end to all people. I surely am going to destroy both them and the earth. Two things here. First, that's not what it says in the Hebrew. It does not say, I am going to put an end to all people. It says, the end of all people has come before me. Meaning, I see where this is going. I see the end of this spiral. It is corrupted. It is ruined, is another translation of the very same word. And so, when it says destroy, it's actually the same word as earlier translated corrupt. 
So we're told three times human beings corrupted everything and were fully corrupted themselves. And then we're told God is going to corrupt it. It was already true. The earth was already ruined. Very much like everything was already ruined in the garden before God gave it a name and described what was now true, that shalom had been shattered. This is exactly the same sort of thing that's happening here. The earth was already ruined. And what happens then is God walks upon this condemned building, sees where it's headed, to falling flat and all things being destroyed. And so what he does is he says, I'm going to give it over to that. I'm going to give it over to chaos so that I can bring new life out of it. That is what the author of Genesis wants us to know about the flood. Not that it was a bunch of angry gods who were upset about how noisy and smelly the people were, which is literally what it says in the Epic of Gilgamesh. You can see a quote here. They're all upset because the human beings are like a lot of them, and they're having babies a lot, and they smell, and they're loud. And so they're like, let's get rid of them, which is a big mistake on their parts because they need the humans to feed them. And we hear all throughout Scripture, God doesn't need us to feed him, and he's not, and he's not angry and capricious. It's not like that at all. No. God has seen where this is going, and so he allows it to go that way. Let me tell you how Paul meditates on the very same concept in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, when we hear a phrase that sets us on edge and makes us think, maybe I should just walk away from this whole thing, a phrase like the wrath of God, we hear Paul say that the wrath of God is equal to him giving us what we want. It says it over and over three times is when it says it in Romans chapter 1. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, what he is like, who he really is and what he isn't like, the fact that he is fully just and fully merciful, they didn't think that was worth holding on to, so God gave them over. It says it three times. C.S. Lewis summarized the very same concept this way. He said, there are those, the seed of the woman, who say, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, the seed of the serpent, all right, have it your way. That is exactly what's happening in this flood account. God is saying, you're choosing chaos over the order? You think this is good and I see that it's bad? You want to spill over the borders I put in your place? Then the chaos is what you have chosen. And I want you to notice in Genesis 6, 6 that his emotion is not anger. His emotion, a stav is the Hebrew word, is pain. He's deeply troubled. The first emotion ascribed to God in the scriptures is that he's heartbroken. He's not angry. He's heartbroken. Something like Paul going into Athens in Acts chapter 17 and not turning over tables, but coaxing them away from the destruction that they're choosing and towards the merciful heart of God. This is how we're described. And so God, in his heartbroken state, in his mercy, says, I have to find a way through this destruction that they're choosing. So he says to Noah, build an ark. Build an ark, which is not a Hebrew word. It's an Egyptian word. And it's used twice in scripture. Here, and Moses, little baby Moses, is put in an ark on the Nile. 
And it's a fascinating word choice because the word ark, taba in Egyptian, is in reference to these little boxes that the Egyptians would make and they would place their idols in it and then send it down the Nile to the next place of worship to keep it safe and comfortable as it goes. And God says, no, that's not where my image is. Those idols are deaf and dumb. They don't speak for me. You do. You're my image. Selim, imago dei. You're my image. You're the one I'm giving everything for. I'll care for you. I'll keep you safe on the waters. This word choice is absolutely on purpose. So we're told that he's supposed to build an ark, and then we're getting some instructions. And they're not very good instructions. <laughs> it's like, what? Okay, it's supposed to be this high and that wide and that deep, okay. And I'm supposed to be go first, second, third. That's all we hear. I don't know about you. That's not enough to build a boat. Not for me. I'm some kind of land lubber. I can't build a boat out of this. I can't. Why did they tell it this way? We have to remember, this passage wasn't for Noah. This was written down after. Traditionally, written down at Mount Sinai and in the desert by Moses. It was for the children of Israel to know what God is like and what God is doing in our world. And it's for us. This passage isn't for Noah. It's not even about Noah, actually. He's silent. Do you notice that? He didn't say a word. First thing he does is curse his grandson. It's kind of a mess. He's, it's, that's the first thing he says. He says nothing the rest of the time. This, this passage is about God. It's about who God is and how his merciful heart will be expressed. And here, the description interestingly matches the tabernacle. He says, here is where you'll be safe with me on the troubled waters. It interesting, interestingly matches the description of the temple with the three sections of the temple, the courtyard, and then the, inner, and then the, and the holy of holies. We have a sense here that we're meant to understand that the ark is a divine refuge where you are made safe, and you can only be safe with God. Now, isn't that the exact opposite of what the ancient Near Eastern accounts of the flood are saying? The place that you are least safe is with the gods. They think you're smelly. They don't like you. But here, the merciful heart of God says, you are safe with me. Trust me. Build a boat on dry land. And so, God makes him safe. He even is the one to shut Noah in. <laughs> Closes the door, he tucks him in. It's beautiful. Makes him safe on the chaotic waters because that's exactly what we should think about them as chaotic waters. Genesis 7, 11. It says, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. This is an exact reversal of day two of creation. God is the sustaining hand. It's only God that can handle being God. And we keep pretending and we keep trying to do it ourselves. And here, God says, you cannot do it yourself. Only I can hold it together. And so our theology of creation needs to do, do way better than simply say, here's how it started. It needs to actually be, and here's how God holds all things together. We sing songs like that sometimes. And here God removes his sustaining hands and lets the chaos that they have chosen overcome the earth. But he had given it order. He had separated the waters. He had brought forth the dry land. And what he does, he withdraws his hand and the waters come crashing from the deep and from, from above and the dry land disappears and all the, all the beings that he had created, it's returned to formlessness, 
to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. When the earth was dark and void of the surface of the deep. But the turning point of the whole thing and our stopping point. The very center statement in the entire story, which is about God and includes Noah, is chapter 8, verse 1. If you were to pair the parts of the way that it descends into chaos, the very center moment before everything is remade is this. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. This word wind is ruach. Last time we heard it, he was putting his spirit, his ruach, in mankind. And the time before that, the spirit of God had hovered over the waters and then separated them. God is going to remake it out of the ashes. It had become a useful formlessness. The potter had taken the broken pot and smashed it so that he could rebuild it into something beautiful and of use. And you know what follows him remaking the world? Read Genesis chapter 8 this week and notice that it follows the days of creation as he remakes the world, as he makes it safe again and orderly again. He, next thing he does is he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah. I'm going to hang up my bow and you and I are going to remake this world together. The seed of the serpents will not get to reign forever. There will come a day where the seed of the woman is restored to its rightful place in Eden. Now we find out it's not Noah that can lead us there, but he gets to partner with the God who can. And that is beautiful. And that is merciful. It's merciful that we get called out of ourselves and into his heart and remade in his image and restored to all that he had dreamed and res rescued from the rubble of all the things we had dreamed and restored to the way things are. It's what Jeremiah is thinking about when he writes chapter 31. And he says, listen, here's when you'll know that I am God and not Enkidu, not Enlil, and not Marduk, and not all those ancient Near Eastern gods that are tyrants. Here's how you'll know I am God. He says, I'm going to take a remnant, and I'm going to help them plant gardens again. And we're going to be gathered together in relationship, in community with one another. And I'm going to comfort you instead of causing any sorrow. We're going to do a new thing on earth. And there's going to be a new covenant in which you have a new heart. God is in the business of making things new, and that's actually what the flood is about. It's about making the world new, which means restoring us to relationship. That's shalom. That's tzedakah. That's righteousness to be in right relationship with God and with each other. And even with ourselves to know that we're participate, participating in the covenant heart of God. 72 times in scripture it says, then you will know that I am God. 58 times in the book of Ezekiel focusing on what God is and what he isn't is well worth our time. Anselm knew it. And when we look at the flood, we realize we've been traveling with all kinds of false expectations about who God is, and it's God's word to us to correct it, to restore our understanding that he's not a capricious, angry God out to destroy. 
He's a merciful, steadfast in love God who is out to restore. I promise you. It's time we let this children's story grow up. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. You're worth loving. Um, sometimes we fail to trust you. Sometimes we follow after the wrong seed. Lord, we thank you for your victory. We thank you for the way that you restore. Remake us in your image. Restore us to our right relationship with each other, with you, with ourselves. Restore us to a right relationship with the earth. Thank you for the way that you leave nothing for dead, but remake us time and time again. Call us into your wonderful and merciful heart. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.